Please take your Bibles and turn with me again to Ephesians chapter 6 as we come this morning to consider the subject of what we call spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, the subject of spiritual warfare. As we turn here, we are turning to the passage that puts this concept on display uh, most prominently in the New Testament among uh, one other major passage that uses this kind of terminology, which we'll look at as we go throughout uh, the morning. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 is what we're going to read. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. We are told in the scripture about the activity of Satan, we are told about the activity of the angelic forces under his charge, also known often as demons or evil spirits. We are told in James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5 to resist the devil. And in fact, we're even promised that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Now, unfortunately, uh, in the absence of considering that further, many times... Uh, we are led to resist him in ways that the scripture doesn't sanction and doesn't instruct us to follow and doesn't even model, but are ways of our own choosing, or perhaps ways that are sort of hijacked from uh, certain places in the gospel accounts where Jesus responded to these evil spirits and then uh, sort of adapted in ways that don't necessarily align with what he did or what the apostles did. And uh, we sort of bring our own ideas to the mix as far as what we're supposed to do in confronting Satan and, and his demons. But this is the passage, the only passage in the New Testament, in fact, which gives us instructions specifically and directly for how we are actually to combat Satan and his demons. If we want to not only know that we must resist the devil, but actually how we are to resist him and to think of it in terms of a battle and of a fight and of warfare, this is the text to go to. And as such, it's very important for our study. When we've been studying the book of Daniel, uh, we 
address this matter because in Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12, we find that there is some angelic activity going on behind the scenes where there is fighting taking place. And it does raise the question, what are we supposed to do in fighting against those forces? But if we fill in our own blanks rather than do so with the word of God, we might end up in places that the word of God doesn't take us or that it doesn't even empower us to carry out. And so what we want to do is to look and see what the scriptures themselves say and what the New Testament commands for us to do and instructs us to do when we are considering how to respond to angelic, specifically demonic and satanic activity around us. And this passage tells us that we are to do so by taking up the full armor of God and by standing firm against the attacks of Satan and demons. So we must again take up the full armor of God and stand firm against the attack of Satan and his demons. And this passage will talk about how we are to do so. We're going to begin by talking about the attitude that uh, we need to have when we come to this battle. And verse 10 begins instructing us about this. We'll talk about the disposition of spiritual warfare. What is the attitude? What is supposed to be the disposition of our souls when we come to this? And the first thing that we need to note is that Paul here tells us that we need to be strong, specifically to be strong in the Lord. Uh, the idea here is that we are somewhat passive recipients of the strength that we need. We are not simply to come up with this strength of our own accord. This is a classic passage that actually explains how it is that we are to do things not in our own strength. A phrase that sometimes is overused or not so clearly used. But here it's very clear that we are supposed to be strengthened by another. And we are supposed to be strengthened specifically by the Lord. The reason why we're supposed to be strong in the Lord is because we on our own are not strong enough to stand up against these forces. Again, we've looked at this in previous weeks with uh, the nature of Satan himself in verse 11 and these demons in verse 12. And we find an example of this in the picture of Acts 18 when the demons responded to the sons of Sceva trying to cast them out by saying, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? And they overtake these men who would be so arrogant as to think that they, in their own power, or just by naming the name of Christ, naming the name of Jesus, could overcome these evil forces. We have to recognize where we stand, relatively speaking, on the strength scale. These kind of spirits are not to be trifled with. And yet, when we're strengthened by the Lord, then we immediately vault on the strength level from below them in our own abilities to above them when we have the Lord's strength working through us. So we need to be strong and be strengthened in the Lord and by the strength of his might. And of course, this comes by all the means that he's going to describe when he talks about putting on the armor of God. This comes by being strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus as we grow in godliness, as we pray for help, as we're supported and encouraged by other people, as we're equipped by the word of God. All of the things that we are supposed to do to grow in grace and godliness are the things which will make us stronger. This is why... Uh, this is why Paul tells Timothy, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, when he is writing to him about needing to fight, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
There is abundant grace to strengthen us. Not only grace to forgive, but grace to strengthen us by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to do what God has instructed us to do. And in this case, to fight the fight against Satan and against his evil forces. So we are to be strong in the Lord. This is our first disposition. We're not to be weak. We're not to be frail. We're not to stand back out of the battle because we don't have the strength and say, I can't fight this. That's for other people. Instead, you have to get involved and be engaged. And then the way that we are to do that and what we're actually supposed to do in this battle is to stand firm. We're supposed to be strong in the Lord, but then also to stand firm in the battle. You notice here that he repeats this uh, multiple times in this text. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The end of verse 13, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm therefore. This is really the main driving command of all of this, which is that if this is going on, you're not supposed to just be a spiritual pushover. You're not supposed to say, well, these forces are stronger than me, so I'm not going to engage. And you're certainly not supposed to be defeatists and pessimists and those who aren't willing to actually stand up against our opponents. You don't really have that option. You have to stand firm. And so the instruction is to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, to stand firm against him. And in order to do so, you have to, as he says, put on the full armor of God. This is your job. This is for all believers. All of us are supposed to do this. Now when he refers to the full armor of God, we'll talk about the details of this in a few verses, but he's referring really to the entire equipment, all that an armed soldier, a fully armed soldier would take upon himself. We're supposed to put this on, not just defense, not just offense, not just protection for some part of our body, but to be fully prepared. And of course, as many of you know, the letter to the Ephesians was written, uh, it's one of what is known as the prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And these four letters are written while the Apostle Paul is captive in his first Roman imprisonment. You can read about the historical account of this in the book of Acts as Paul returned to Jerusalem uh, at the end of his third missionary journey and he was carrying a large sum of money to give to the saints in Jerusalem to help them in their famine. Uh, Once he did this, he was taken prisoner for something that he didn't do and he was held captive for years until finally he, uh, he had to appeal to Caesar. He was taken to Rome and he spent two years there in his own rented house house waiting for trial before the emperor. We read about that last part in Acts chapter 28. Well, while he was there, he wrote some letters to churches, and this would have been one of them. And of course, uh, very likely at the moment when he's writing this letter then, uh, if not at all times, he would have been in the presence of one or more Roman soldiers who would have provided a very easy template for what he was writing. Of course, this picture of a soldier wouldn't have been visible only to him. It would have been uh, very common in the entire Roman Empire for them to picture a soldier in this way because the Roman military was spread throughout this entire empire, including the city of Ephesus, where this letter would have been written to and delivered by Paul's ministry partner, Tychicus, several weeks after he left Rome. And here then he draws on this picture uh, that would have been familiar to all of them of a soldier. And he says, if you are going to stand firm, then you need to be dressed up. You need to be prepared. And you need to do this for the sake of standing firm, of fighting back and not being moved in the battle. 
Well, what then is it that we are actually doing in this battle? You know, it's, there's no point we talk about being all dressed up and having nowhere to go. Well, we don't want to be all dressed up and having no one to fight in our military equipment. And we certainly don't want to go fight the wrong opponents or waste our efforts on something that's not actually uh, the real battle that we're engaged in. And we also certainly don't want to be diverted and distracted when the real opponents are coming against us. And because Satan works by way of deception we need to give special attention to consider just how it is that he comes after us because it might not be very obvious. Let's consider then the scope of spiritual warfare. The scope of spiritual warfare. What does it involve? Well, we begin by considering our opponents in verses 11 and 12, our opponents. And this is something that we have already covered to some degree uh, in the last couple of weeks, but we begin by uh, considering the devil. He says, you need to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The first statement we get about the nature of the battle is uh, something of a shock. Not because we haven't heard about the devil, but just because he is so strong. You know, if you're going to say, well, you got to go fight somebody today. And you say, well, okay, uh, that doesn't sound very appealing, but who am I going to fight? He says, oh, not a big deal. Just the most powerful evil opponent that you could possibly think of. None other than Satan himself. This, was, this is an intimidating statement if it's just up to us. And that's why you have to put on the full armor of God. Satan works by means of schemes, as it says here, scheming and craftiness. He works through his plots. He works through deception. He works through uh, cunning. He tries to undermine and deceive. He doesn't just come with a direct, frontal, obvious attack but he works through fakes and deception and decoys and anything else that can make us think that we are safe from him when really we're not. Satan opposes God's purposes and God's people, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, um, but mainly does so through temptation and deception. And so in this context of standing firm, we need to remember that we are up against him. But we're not just up against the devil himself. He also works through another group, namely demonic forces. So verse 12 tells us about this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We have a fight. We have a struggle. We have a contest that we're in. What is the nature of that contest and who is it against? He says, it is not against flesh and blood. Now, most of you may know this, but this phrase, flesh and blood, refers, of course, to uh, humanity and specifically non-glorified humanity. That is humanity in its form as it is here and now in this life. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read that Jesus partook of flesh and blood um, Matthew 16, 17, we find Jesus telling Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. When he makes a great confession about who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, you didn't get that from man. You got that from God. Galatians 1, 16, Paul says he didn't immediately consult flesh and blood when he first heard the gospel from Jesus Christ. So this really just refers to human beings. And what he's saying is we as Christians are not a physical army trying to conquer another physical army. In fact, we're not fighting against humans 
at all. This is not our battle when it comes to spiritual warfare. We are fighting against a different kind of being. That's our fight. And he lists four kinds of them or four different descriptions here in verse 12. He refers to rulers and powers. This is, uh, these are spiritual forces with the uh, ability and the freedom to act in various ways in the universe. They could include not only evil ones, but also uh, they could include powerful uh, godly angels. For example, in uh, Ephesians 3.10, the manifold wisdom of God was to be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And according to chapter 1, verse 19, uh, excuse me, verse 20, Christ was raised by God and seated in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. So these are powerful spiritual forces. In this case, of course, it's referring to those that oppose Christians. So it is referring to demons, to evil spirits. He also refers here to world forces of this darkness. Uh, darkness implying a, uh, the opposite of spiritual light, the opposite of truth. Ephesians 5.8, he says, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Colossians 1.13 tells us we have been rescued from the domain of darkness. And of course, Acts 26.18, Paul says that he was sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. So Satan and his kingdom and the rule of demons and of Satan himself is characterized by darkness. And the world forces of this darkness simply refers to those that are in this position of power who are characterized by this spiritual darkness and therefore opposed to God, opposed to truth, opposed to righteousness, opposed to Christ, and opposed to Christ's people, the church. And then, of course, he lists... Fourthly, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, which means that these are spiritual beings who are evil and who have their sort of home base in the heavenly places. Obviously, if they can attack us and if we are opposing them, then they can in some way engage with the world itself and not, and not simply be uh, restrained to the heavenly places. They are in some way able to go between, but they are heavenly in nature and the heavens or the heavenly places, the spiritual realm, if you will, is their home. So we are against this kind of creature. This is a strong army and we need to prepare for the fight. Now the question is then how do we actually fight against them? How do we fight against them? Certain views of spiritual warfare come to this passage and rather than demonstrating or uh, proving from the text, will assume direct, explicit contact and communication and confrontation with these creatures. And they will say, our battle is against them, therefore we must be in direct contact with them in order for us to actually fight them. And that also implies that they would be making direct contact with us. 
This, however, is not borne out by the text. It says our battle is against them, but it doesn't say that we actually are coming face to face with them, communicating with them, speaking with them back and forth, or in any other way kind of attacking them directly. Instead, we are attacking them and defending ourselves against them and their indirect attacks. Indirect attacks. For example, Ephesians 4.14 tells us that as a result of the building up of the body of Christ, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Here you have these, the same idea of scheming, of craftiness that is attributed to Satan. It is false doctrine, which we are told is the work of Satan and demons. And it's referred to here as the trickery of men. When Satan wants to introduce deceptive doctrines into the world, and when he wants to tempt and to draw away men, almost every case in the scripture of him doing this is not him directly going to someone, as in the cases such as with Adam and Eve or with Jesus himself, but it is working through mediators, intermediaries, working through messengers, and through bringing about this kind of deception through other people. And so it is those that will oppose us. It is those ideas. It is those concepts, those temptations, those deceptions that Satan uses to come against us. And certainly it is true that there have been occasions throughout Scripture, well, where Satan will himself send his demons or allow his demons to possess certain people or to take hold of certain people and that those he does actually directly attack them in that way. But when it comes to what we are supposed to do in spiritual warfare, this is a different kind of game. It's a different kind of activity. Satan himself then attacks us um, by means of trying to do us spiritual harm. Certainly he would delight to do us physical harm as well. We find that in the book of Job where he comes after Job, although even then he's trying to undermine Job's faith when he attacks him physically. So Satan himself comes against us in these ways. He comes against us by deception. He tries to tempt us and we need to fight back against him, but this doesn't mean that we are coming into direct contact. Instead, he has the world captive through other means. First of all, through the power of death. Hebrews 2.14 says that Jesus, through death, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He holds the unbelieving world blind to the gospel so that they can't see it. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan opposes people by holding them captive in unbelief, and where people have been freed, he aims to get them back, or at least to do them harm. So 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
These are our opponents, Satan and these angelic forces. So where is it that we actually then go to war with them? Where do we fight them? Let's consider this and call it our battlefield. Our battlefield. Where do we engage with Satan and his demonic forces? And there are two primary areas that we are doing this kind of warfare. First of all, we are fighting for obedience to the gospel. Obedience to to the gospel. And what this means then is people listening to and responding to the gospel by faith. Uh, we read in Romans chapter 1 that Paul is an apostle uh, of Christ Jesus and he is sent out in Romans 1:5 to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So obedience to the gospel, namely, the gospel says repent and believe. And when someone is saved, they obey that instruction to believe and to put their trust in Christ. Now, as we consider this, this leads us to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to consider a passage that talks about warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, if you would turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 10. He says, now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I whom am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I'm present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We are human beings. We live in human bodies, but we don't war according to human battles. Why? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Destruction of fortresses. This is what Paul is going up against. There are fortresses. You say, what are those fortresses? Well, people have all kinds of ideas about what those fortresses are. They will say that demons will take over and, you know, have cause wrong views in our minds and make us think certain things and uh, give us certain thoughts. But you don't find that here in the text. What does he say? Verse 5, we are destroying, what are we destroying? Speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There is nothing here about demon inserted thoughts. There's nothing here about anything that is directly injected into the mind. These are simply the things that people believe that are against the truth of God and more particularly against the gospel and the response of obedience to the gospel, of obedience to Christ, which involves turning to Christ by faith and then obeying all of the commands of Scripture. And so he says, what are the weapons of our warfare? Well, he doesn't actually say exactly what they are. He just says that, uh, he says that they are not of the flesh, and he talks about how powerful they are, and then he talks about what he uses them for. And the whole point here is that there are ideas in people's minds that they think from whatever source, for whatever reason, whether they learned it from a false teacher, whether they just got it by experience in the world, whether they were taught this as a young child or a very old person or anything in between, whatever it is, people think wrong things about Christ. 
They think wrong things about God. And he says, our job, our task, when we are fighting, according to this description, is to change that. We're trying to persuade people of the truth. We're trying to teach people and instruct people about the truth. This is our warfare. And so rather than sort of uh, going and rebuking people or trying to cast ideas out of their minds or anything like that, this kind of spiritual warfare that's described here in 2 Corinthians 10 is all about the persuasive power of the word of God. It is all about teaching and instructing and persuading and exhorting that people might believe the truth. Anything that does not align with the knowledge of God, verse 5, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So obedience to the gospel is what is involved here. And what that means is that in unbelievers, we are trying to persuade them of the truth. 2 Corinthians 4 talked about this as well. Uh, I already mentioned that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. But he says in verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We preach Christ even though they are blinded by Satan because we know that God can shine through that and can give them the knowledge of the truth. But nonetheless, Satan fights against obedience to the gospel by trying to blind the minds of unbelieving people, trying to undermine the gospel itself, trying to bring other gospels, as Galatians 1 talks about, another gospel, even if it supposedly came from an angel in heaven or in 2 Corinthians, another Jesus or another spirit or another gospel. They're all out there. He tries to oppose gospel faith by outright rejection and by, by uh, false gospels, by deceptive error. But he also does this in believers. He tries to undermine gospel faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says that uh, many will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. The spirit explicitly says this, some will fall away from the faith because of this. And Satan is trying to influence those who are in the church through erroneous doctrine about Christ or erroneous doctrine that leads people then away from Christ without even attacking him directly. So this is the first issue. Our battlefield has to do with obedience to the gospel. When we are doing spiritual warfare, that's what this is about. And when Paul asks for prayer at the end of Ephesians 6, that's what he's asking for prayer about because he is taking the gospel into enemy territory and he needs help through prayer. We're also then talking not only about obedience to the gospel, but also about protection of the church, protection of the church. And as I already read in Ephesians chapter four, there are those who will trick and deceive and try to draw away the disciples. And Paul says that the church needs to build itself up in the truth according to the word of God and by serving one another and by carrying out all the proper functions so that we're not tossed by this stuff. So that we're not deceived and carried away by every wind of doctrine. Protection of the church. That's what Ephesians 6 is talking about. When he says we need to stand firm against the attacks of the devil. He has this in view. So what this means then is our battlefield um, concerns spiritual territory. Spiritual progress. And not in the sense of displacing demons but in the sense of people believing the gospel 
and growing and being protected in that gospel faith. We have no delight, I hope, in sin or in a society that promotes sin. And we certainly don't want things to progress to worse in those ways. But we can't ever be satisfied with any progress, moral or otherwise, that's less than gospel progress. We have spiritual objectives that are aligned with Scripture, that are according to the gospel. Spiritual warfare is not just about making better people. Spiritual warfare is about people believing the gospel and then people walking in the way that God wants them to walk in response to that. So we can wisely choose to make efforts that are in the best interest of our neighbors or our fellow citizens, our fellow human beings who are made in God's image. We can do good things for them and do good deeds for them. But we need to always remember that our ultimate mission is to gain spiritual territory, so to speak. And so this means people believing the gospel and people growing in grace. People believing the gospel and people growing in grace. Uh, I hope that you can see here in Ephesians 6 then that when we're talking about spiritual warfare, what we are referring to is that uh, this is not really about personal, individual, internal kind of battles that you're facing or that you're fighting. It's not really about that. Your own sanctification is part of putting on the armor, but the battle is bigger than that. There's something more going on. This, this isn't just about, well, spiritual warfare equals sanctification and godliness. That's not really the whole picture. That's part of it. That's part of the outcome. But that's also the means to the end. And the means is godliness and spiritual preparedness. But the, uh, the end goal is that we would take more of what Satan currently holds in defiance of God. And that we would protect the gains that God has given in gospel faith and gospel progress. Um, So then, here he says, we are supposed to fight in these particular ways. We're supposed to fight against the schemes of the devil. We're supposed to fight against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And this is the primary thrust. Now, obviously, there are instances in the scriptures of Jesus, of the apostles of even uh, some that he sent out specifically, and at least one other person uh, casting out demons who were possessing unbelieving people. Uh, Certainly that was something that did happen. Certainly it did benefit those people. Uh, We need to be cautious with this because, first of all, nowhere is the Christian told that we are supposed to do this. Now, just because we're not told to do something doesn't mean that we can't do something. Uh, This doesn't this is, uh, passage here is not a passage that is about demonic uh, casting out. This is not about addressing demon possession. Spiritual warfare doesn't really have anything to do with that at all in the terms that Scripture describes. This doesn't mean that we will never encounter someone who is possessed by a demon. Uh, they existed during Jesus' time, and it would not be surprising to see them in the world after him. But when it comes to the Christian's interaction with them in this way, in this era of history, for us, at most it is, relatively speaking, an afterthought. And what we are supposed to do, instructed, commanded to do, is to fight against the schemes of the devil in the ways that this text tells us. And if we're going to do this, then what we need to do is to have the right 
equipment. This is what we'll look at for the rest of this text, the equipment of spiritual warfare. Now, we won't go greatly into detail in this. You can look at a lot of this yourself. But uh, notice here that he talks about not only the full armor of God, but specific pieces. And he emphasizes you need to take up the whole thing And that's the only way to stand firm. We cannot just be content with one dimension of this, one area of our spiritual life being in order, but not worried about the rest of it. We need to make sure that we have all of this. Again, he emphasizes the full armor of God over and over again. Verse 11, you need to take up the full armor. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God. And then he lists out what all of these things are. You have to be able to resist the devil. And the only way to do that is by putting on the full armor of God. And again, we need to make sure that we fight, that we are prepared. In matters of personal vengeance, the Bible forbids us fighting. But when it comes to Satan, we are told to fight back and to fight back hard. He says we need to uh, put this on so that we'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. What do we need to do if we're going to do this? What are the specific pieces of the armor? Well, he starts with five defensive weapons, five or five defensive pieces verse 14 stand firm therefore and he lists four things that you're supposed to do even before you take this attitude of stand firm having girded your loins with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness having shod your feet with the gospel of peace in verse 16 even uh even this he's uh having taken up the shield of faith is is the language there and the point is you've got to do all of this stuff first this is preparatory before you stand You need the armor on, girding your loins with the truth. You would take the clothes and you might have a loose robe and you would put this sort of belt on, which would also have protection for the thighs. If you're a soldier, you're putting this on before you're able to go into battle. And this pictures the truth of God. The truth is found only in God's word. Satan operates by means of what? Error and deception. And so the only way to fight against him is to be very ready with the truth. We like to think that we can just oppose him by an act of our will or even the strength of the Lord when we see him. But if we don't have the truth girding our loins, we won't even see him in the first place. We won't recognize the error that's there. So you need to know truth and you need to know it as comprehensively as you can. And you need to know it accurately. This is not to say that you don't need to know other kinds of truth as well, but here the emphasis is upon divine truth. There is such a thing as truth that can be known outside of the scripture. Two plus two does in fact equal four, but there's no truth like God's truth that has the power to protect us from Satan's attacks. We need to then put on the breastplate of righteousness, some type of metal protection for the torso, uh, maybe even chain, but in some way or another, they're using strong material to, to protect this upper body that they would have going into battle. And righteousness is what is pictured here. Now, when we talk about righteousness, certainly we understand that righteousness for the Christian has at its root being credited with righteousness through faith in the gospel. That's foundational to all of this. We can't do anything until our sins are taken away. And this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. When he died for our sins, he took away our sin and he credited us with righteousness. And so we stand in God's sight, perfectly righteous, treated as if we have never sinned, treated as if we are perfectly righteous, just like Christ is. And we are then in favor with God. This is the glory of the gospel And yet, we need to not only 
bank upon that for our eternal soul, but we need to live righteously. And this seems to be what's in view here. The breastplate of righteousness, righteous practice, where you are determined to do what is right and upright and to live according to the devout standards that God gives us. This righteousness prepares us for battle. Verse 15, we are supposed to put on, if you will, the shoes of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the gospel of peace. If you have ever tried to play tug of war in very loose dirt, if you've ever tried to play a sport on a field that's wet without cleats, you understand how difficult it is to actually be able to go where you want to go, and you understand how difficult it is to stay where you want to stay when other people are pushing you. And here, this is the idea. If you're going to stand firm, you need to be able to dig in. This kind of shoe would have been a kind of would have had a kind of cleat on it so that you could stand firm and not be moved when people are coming against you. And here we find that the gospel of peace, specifically that element of peace that we have with God through faith in the gospel, is what protects us. Satan's role is additionally, besides the tempter, besides the deceiver, is the accuser of the brethren. And he fights against us. And what better thing to know in the fight than that we are assured of being at peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it not true that doubts about where you stand before God can cause you to be tempted to sin? It's a strange thing, isn't it? Because you think, well, I don't know if God is happy with me. I don't know if I'm at right with God. I don't know if I'm at peace with God. I guess I need to make up for it. And we start to try to earn our way to him. But when we know we have peace with God, then we're safe from the attacks of the accuser of the brethren. And this enables us to withstand his lies, to trust in Christ, and to walk by faith. And here we find that that is the next element in this armor. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. This is a shield that would have been large enough uh, to protect the whole body, at least if you were to duck behind it. As these flaming arrows come in, as these darts, these projectiles come in, Satan's attacks, you actually are able to resist that. Um, In these moments, what you need more than anything is faith, specifically faith in divine truth. Think about the differing responses, the contrasting responses of Eve on the one hand and Jesus on the other when tempted by the devil. Jesus responded to Satan's attacks by citing scripture and not just by citing it and quoting it, but by believing it, by acting in line with the fact that he said, this is what's true, not what you're telling me, not what you're tempting me to do. Eve, on the other hand, knew the word of God about her situation. She could even say, no, this is what God said. And Satan questioned it. And instead of saying, no, I'm trusting God on this one, not you, she started to reason. And she started to rationalize. She didn't trust what God had told her. She trusted in her own understanding. She was wise in her own eyes, aided and abetted by Satan's deception. See the difference that faith would have made there. If she would have simply said, I don't understand all that you're telling me. It may be true that there's some of what you're telling me is partially true, but God said this and I believe it and therefore I'm going to do it. 
This is the kind of faith that we need to exercise in the face of Satan's attacks. There is no greater spiritual attribute that we can have when we're tempted than simply trusting what God has said, even if we don't understand why, even if we don't know all of his reasons for it, even if we don't know what the outcome is going to be. If we walk by faith, then we will be able to defend ourselves against Satan's temptations and attacks. And so we need to make sure that we know what to believe, that we remember to believe it, and that we not only remember that truth, but that we exercise faith in that truth at that given moment of temptation. The shield of faith needs to be the way that we walk. And then we take the, the helmet of salvation, this hope that we have of future glory, salvation that God gives us, not only to have saved us here and now, but also what's coming in the future. There is uh, one offensive weapon and one accompanying practice. When we participate in spiritual warfare, and this gives us some insight into the nature of the battle, he says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the spirit, like a a dagger type of sword is really what's in view, a a somewhat shorter sword, not a knife, but in between a knife and and a long sword. And the spirit uses this sword which specifically refers not just to the word of God that has been spoken by God, but by, to the speaking of the word of God. That's a different word than what is normally used here for word. Uh, the word of God referring to vocalizing that and referring to actually telling people and trying to teach the truth and preach the truth to people. This is not some kind of magic hocus pocus where you just simply recite verses and hope that the demons run away. But this is the speaking and the persuading of truth. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 10 when he says we're destroying these arguments and speculations raised up against the knowledge of God. We use the word of God to attack the lies of the enemy and to persuade people of the truth and to tell them things that they don't know about how they can be saved and how they can be built up in the truth. And this is how we take territory. This is why Satan doesn't like what we're doing. He tries to push us back as far as we can, as far as he can, and so we need to stand firm. And then we need to try to take his territory where he has held the whole world captive except for what we've been able to take by means of gospel growth. Along with these pieces of armor, then Paul gives this accompanying practice of prayer, and he tells us that we should pray in verse 18 for other believers... And in verses 19 and 20, for gospel advancement. Always these two things on our mind. Verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for who? All the saints. Pray for one another. And then he asks for prayer on his behalf as he is concerned with taking the gospel to new people. That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Once again, these are the two areas of our fight. The protection, spiritually speaking, of one another, of believers and our growth and our needs. And then the gospel going out into the world. This is our war. We are trying to spiritually take over the world as much territory as we can have. And we're trying to hold on to what we have already, by God's grace, been able to conquer. This is the nature of spiritual warfare. This is what we all need to be engaged in. This is what we, this is what we must be involved in. And this is what we are called here to do, to stand firm in this battle. So, that's a lot to, uh, that's a lot to do on our own, isn't it? 
But thankfully, we don't have to. And so we go back to verse 10, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And it would be good even now to pray and to ask for his help in this. So let's do that. Let's go to the Lord and pray for this grace. Father, thank you that we can rely upon you and the strength that you give us, and specifically the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who by his spirit strengthens us to do all of this. We know that we would have no hope apart from him in every way, but also in fighting this. But your cause is worthy, and may you help us to fight to advance it, and may you give us the grace to do that. Help us to know where we're deficient in our spiritual armor, and help us to put it on so that we can get in the battle and fight for the sake of the truth and the sake of the gospel for one another and for all of your purposes. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.